You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right. Uh, so like Joe said, we're in a nine-month series of ecclesiology. This is the eighth month. Um, sorry, a nine-month series of systematic theology. We're in the eighth month talking about ecclesiology, which is the study of church. Uh, and Joe started off this month talking about um, what is the church, and he kind of t- talked us through the part of the Nicene Creed that talks about the church, and we believe in one holy uh, Catholic and apostolic church, and we talked about what that means for, you know, like what it means for us as we come together, what it means as the church is a, a worldwide organization. Uh, and then the second week, Joe talked about the function, functions of the church. Do, do you guys remember the functions of the church? Could you tell me? It was, it was quite a while ago. Two weeks is a long time. So, uh, but basically the functions that he listed, um, evangelism, worship, social concern, and edification. So those are the things that the church does, the function as, as a whole. You know, like when we look at the church, these are the things that it does. Uh, last week, Greg Hampton spoke, um, and he talked about this idea of like the order of becoming part of the church, and that's believing and becoming and belonging. And really he talked about how there isn't really an order uh, and how it can kind of go any direction. It can kind of, like some people might believe in Jesus first and then belong to a church and then become more like Jesus. Or some people might belong to a church. Uh, they might come and sit with us and they don't really know if they believe yet and kind of believing comes after. So we talked about that idea of there isn't necessarily an order to how you can join the church or become a part of the church. Um, But this week we're going to talk about kind of, we're going to go back to what Joe talked about in the functions of the church, and we're going to talk about one of those four functions, uh, and that's worship. So one of the four functions of the church is worship, um, and I think we're going to kind of focus in on that and look at what it is that worship is to us. Um, So the liturgy of the church is, you know, it's it's what we do during worship, and it's what we do during a weekly service. Uh, And I'm going to start it right off the bat. Um, since you guys are all at tables with people you might have just met or uh, know for a little bit, and we're going to do a discussion. And what I want you to discuss at your tables, and afterwards I'm going to have Joe walk around with the mic and kind of get some, some answers, I want you to talk about what comes to mind when you hear the word liturgy. So is it, uh, it might be like memories of when you were younger, it might be memories of uh, last week, it m- might be memories of your church, memories of our church, but I just want you to talk about what that word means to you what it is, what it isn't. Ready? I'll give you a few minutes. Go. All right. So we've talked about what comes to mind when we hear the word liturgy. So does anyone have, did any tables have any good answers or memories or stories? Anyone? Everyone? Joe, what did your table talk about? Check. Check. Annie Tuttle had something genius. She actually knew what the word meant. And so I'll let her describe the definition of liturgy. It's related to the word literature. And in the early church, they would um, schedule out um, the Bible readings for every day and every service um, to go along with the seasons of the church. And so that's basically all there is to it. All right. Any other tables? Very good. What what came to mind when you thought of the word liturgy? Anyone? I'll call on people. Did anyone know what it meant? Does anyone know what it is? Worship. All right, worship. Anyone else? Bucky, say something. Sounds like a great discussion happened. I got Bucky here. 
I love the liturgy at New Life Church. It's pretty nice. All right. Every morning we go in, we worship. We have yeah. a pastor speak. We have some communion offering. Yeah. You know, just the flow of the worship service. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else? All right. No, that's good. All right, so basically, yeah, what Annie and Bucky talked about um, is kind of the essence of liturgy. And it, like Annie said, it was kind of like this scheduled thing. And uh, Bucky said, Bucky mentioned kind of the flow of the service. And uh, that's really what liturgy is. It comes from a Greek word, uh, liturgia. And, and basically, the, the root of the word in Greek, uh, it, for the Greek culture, it used to mean basically service. So, uh, so actually, there, liturgy... Um, referred to, it referred like, I guess what we call a politician today, someone who does a public service. Uh, and, and a long time ago in Greece, they would call that liturgy. They would say, oh, this person does liturgy. They serve the public and they do public service. Um, for our purposes, liturgy kind of means the order of service. So basically, when we come together, uh, we have a service planned out. And um, we do certain things every week, and we, we kind of do church, and it looks a certain way every week. And some of you, like Annie said a long time ago, it looked like this for a lot of churches. This is like a Roman Catholic service, and some of you might have like really bad ties to that. If you grew up in a Catholic church, that picture right there scares you. Um, <laughs> and that's what a lot of people think of when they think of liturgy. They think of like, oh, it's kind of old-fashioned, and it's all like scheduled and formal, and it's weird. Um, and in all fairness, uh, there, there are even some, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, liturgy is less of like just kind of this idea of an order of service, and it's more of like an actual thing. So if you're in an Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church, it's all right, I can talk, uh, and you hear someone say that they refer to the liturgy, uh, if they were to write that down, it would be capital capital L, liturgy, and what they're talking about is the Eucharist. So I think if you grew up in that church, you might actually think, oh, we're talking about the Eucharist, and I think it's more than that. So we're going to talk more about more than the Eucharist, Um, but I think a lot of people don't really know the essence of what the word means. Um, And really, just as much as this picture here is liturgy happening, so is this one. Uh, And this is kind of like what New Life Church might look like, or uh, kind of the, the, I guess, the contemporary, the common contemporary church in America looks like this. They have a worship band with flashing lights, and uh, the guy playing guitar usually has a tattoo on his arm to show you that he's, he's pretty cool. Um, and really, every church has a liturgy. And so it's like if you go to a church where they have worship and then a skit and then a sermon, that's the church's liturgy. That's what they do. Uh, New Life Church has a liturgy. We have uh, on a Sunday morning service, we have worship, and we have usually like something might happen where it's whether communion happens during service or at the end of service, or sorry, during worship or at the end of the service. Um, there's usually like an announcement video to let people know what's going on around the church, uh, and then we have a, a sermon, a preaching of the word, uh, and that's kind of our liturgy. And there, there's all sorts of things that are kind of involved in liturgy, um, and I think some people uh, kind of look at liturgy and they think. Why do we have it? Why is it important to have like this all planned out? And uh, it's more than liturgy is more than like a necessary evil. You know, it's like it's not like uh, we have we all have to pay bills. It's just kind of one of these things we have to deal with. 
Liturgy is different than that, where it's like, oh, we have to have a liturgy, so I guess we will. Uh, it's really something that's good. It's not, like I said, it's not a necessary evil. Um, but a lot of people do ask the question, do we need it? Is it necessary? Um, and one of the questions that kind of goes along with this question um, is, why can't we just let the Spirit lead us? Like, why can't we all just show up in a room and somebody brings a guitar, and if they feel like playing it, if they feel like the Holy Spirit tells them to play their guitar, then we will. Uh, and someone might sing a song, and it, we might not know the words, or someone might pray in tongues, and we might not know what they're praying. Uh, and then if someone has a word, they might give it. So it's like, why can't we just kind of let that happen? Can't the Spirit just lead us? And I think that He does lead us in our services, and, and I would say that especially at New Life, we put a lot of thought into the things that we do at church. Um, you know, it's, it, it's not like we just have this plan where we think, well, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. There's a lot of prayer that goes into it. So I would say that, that the Spirit can lead us, and it doesn't, it's not exclusive to having a form. Um, so this is the kind of the question, is, is like, why can't we just let the Spirit lead us? And uh, there is like kind of this, I think, argument against liturgy in the sense that people kind of misinterpret it. Sometimes people think of it as like old stuff, you know, like, oh, it's like old sermons and old prayers and stuff. I actually, kind of this funny, I don't know if you can call it a funny story, I was kind of frustrated when it happened, but there's this uh, radio station in town, and for those of you who might be like, I don't know, I don't know if it's like a nerdy thing, but for a little while I would listen to it all the time, uh, and it's 101.7, and basically if you turn on to 101.7, you're hearing like different churches in town, they'll have their Sunday sermon and they'll put it on so that people can listen to it on the radio. And I was listening to this pastor, and I don't, I actually caught like just 10 minutes while I was driving from church to my house, and uh, I was listening to it, so I don't know the pastor's name, I don't know where he was from, so I'm not saying this story to embarrass anyone, but the pastor was talking about old songs and new songs, and kind of like, I guess new songs in the sense of like a spirit-led song where uh, the spirit's leading you to sing a new song that might not be written down. And basically he was, he was saying, here at our church, we don't sing old songs. We only sing new songs. And the kind of the funny part of the story is that he referenced Psalm 96, Sing to the Lord a New Song, which if you know the Psalms, they're old songs. And so he used this old song to kind of give proof for why we don't need old songs and why we should only sing new songs. But there, it's kind of like this thing of like, old is bad and new is good. Um, and so I was like, man, that's kind of frustrating that he would, number one, that he would kind of use an old song to prove that we don't need them, um, but that he kind of is, is down on things just because they're old. And I think like the scriptures are old, that's not a bad thing. Um, but a lot of people have a problem with liturgy because it's like a borrowed prayer. You know, some people might say, well, I do, I see how those prayers are right, they make sense, but it's not as authentic if it's not me praying, if it's not coming out of my mind or my heart. So to, to pray a prayer that was written down in the Bible uh, or like a recited prayer where we're all saying it together, it's not genuine. It's, it's like kind of fake. And so there's people who say the borrowed prayers aren't um, authentic. They're not genuine. And some people would say the, these forms, these borrowed prayers or old songs, they're kind of too constricting for me. You know, like they're, it's, I just feel constricted by having to follow this idea. Um, how many of you guys have your Bibles with you? Joe always talks about at Sunday school how it's awesome to have your Bible with you. And it might be a paper Bible. It might be in your uh, phone. But I think it's really good to always have a Bible when you come to church. Um, 
And especially, I really like having a paper Bible so you can write in it. You know, like if you, I mean, hopefully you'll write something down today that I've said. But especially like in, in church services, if you, something is taught that you think is really interesting, you can write it and you can remember it. Um, and we're going to go to a verse that you probably actually don't need to read out of your Bible. If you've been to a Sunday school service ever in your life, you've probably read this verse. Um, but I wanted to kind of have us read it again and point something out. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is, like you know, the very beginning of the Bible, and it's talking about creation. Uh, It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, And I think it's really interesting that the very first thing that the Bible points out is that before God created, there's formlessness. There isn't anything with form. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, I don't really know exactly what that looked like if you were to be able to go back and look at that and see like, with your eyes what it looked like. I don't know. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't form. So it's like maybe things were, I mean, there was nothing, but there was something because God was there. And there's just like, you, can't, you couldn't point anything out and say, well, there's that and there's that because there's no form. It's not divided. Um, And I think that kind of shows us that God is a God who brings form into formlessness. He, with the very first thing that he did with creation, um, he brought form into it and he brought us order. And so, so all that to say that I think that God operates in form. And um, I was talking with Daniel Grothy this week as I was preparing and I said, I said, maybe God is formal and we, we kind of talked about how maybe that's not the best way to say it. Like, I wouldn't go as, so far as to say is God is only formal, but uh, I think what I've kind of landed on is God works with form, and he gives us freedom, so we, we do have freedom. It's not like he gave us form and order, and we have to follow it, um, like, step by step, and he tells us what to say and all that. We have, we have freedom and we have will, but it's all within these bounds that he's created of form. Um, and and it, it shows, even in Jesus' time, he... Jesus followed form, and it, the, in Luke 4, it talks about how he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, which is where he grew up, and he went to the synagogue, which, um, like any good Jewish person would do, he worshiped in the synagogue, and the, the synagogue had a liturgy, it had a form. There would usually be prayers, there would be psalm singing, there would be blessings, reading from scriptures, and commentaries on the scripture. So they would have scrolls, and uh, there was always like this uh, it's like a portable case, because a lot of times the synagogue, which actually, if you didn't know, the synagogue is different than the temple. So they would go to the temple, make sacrifices, take care of all of, like the atonement stuff, the sin. Um, and then they would also have the synagogue, which a lot of times would meet in like the town hall. It was like kind of a discussion forum, in a sense. Uh, obviously, there was prayers and stuff like that too. But So Jesus went there, um, and he took part in that. So even Jesus is like, I kind of, sometimes I... Like people might say, you know, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So uh, Jesus participated in this form. Um, the interesting thing about synagogue, which I think shows that there's form, but there's also freedom, is uh, I, I found this really interesting when I learned this week, is that they, they had these things set in place and they would do a certain liturgy. But when it came to the, the part where there would be a commentary on the scriptures, anyone could do it. So it's like the rabbi would be there and he would be... Mo- in most cases, the most educated person in the room uh, probably like, knew more than anyone. But anyone who walked in that day, if they felt qualified, they could just go talk to him and say, hey, I'm going I'm to teach. 
I just thought that'd be funny. Like if one of you guys came and on a Sunday school, like Joe really inspired you and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go over to Sunday morning and tap Brady on the shoulder. Hey, Brady, you can uh, go have a seat. I'm going to take this one today. <laughs> so I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like you could just go up and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach out of the scriptures today. But that was a cool idea. Um, so really the, the point here is there is form and it's kind of all throughout the Bible uh, and we see this. So what does that look like today? Um, a, lot of, a lot of church, uh, church churches, um, denominations have what, like, it's like a script, like Annie said, it's kind of like, it's scripted out, um, and you might recognize this, this is kind of like the back of a pew, you'll walk in and there's usually a Bible and a prayer book, or like this, this one here is um, the Lutheran worship, uh, and this here is the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and basically, you, you could walk in, to, especially like the Catholic Church has the Catholic Missal, and you can walk in, and the, the person running the service will say, turn to this page, and you'll turn to this page, and it'll say, the pastor reads this, and then he'll read that, and then it'll say, and everyone responds with this, and you read out of this book, and you say certain things. Um, and I think there's some value to that. Like, if you guys know Glenn Packiam, he just wrote a book kind of introducing liturgy to people who might not... Um, uh, I guess more, more of like the, the borrowed prayers thing uh, and discussing why it's important. And basically he talks about um, how children, when they're learning how to talk, they, they use borrowed language. And it's not like when they're learning to talk, they're just making up these new words that they didn't know before. They're saying things back to the parents. So the parents are saying to their little child, say this word. Usually it's like, say daddy. And the baby tries and doesn't really do it. And then after a few weeks of trying, it comes out. And so the baby's uh, repeating back to the parents what it's heard from them. Um, and I think that's, that kind of is a good idea of showing us why praying the Psalms is a huge thing. So when we're learning to pray, um, to pray the Psalms is us learning God's language. It's us learning how, um, how he kind of taught us to pray through his scripture. And so, so there is definitely a good thing about praying what's in your heart and praying um, kind of spontaneous prayers and uh, what some people might call more authentic prayers. I don't know that I would say that. There's definitely value to that, but I think sometimes if it, we only do that, we, we kind of fall back to our, our own hearts and our hearts in their nature aren't, um, they, every, like the Bible says, all of us fall short of the glory of God. So if we only lean on ourselves, then, um, then we're kind of missing the mark. We're we're not really getting all of it. So I think there's something to praying psalms. Um, and it's this idea of imitating what we've heard from our Father. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about, the next, well, the next thing I want you guys to talk about, um, and again, I'm going to have Joe walk around and get some answers so you can have some this time, um, is uh, when we gather, so we, we've talked about how there's forms, and forms are good, and God has created forms, and he put them in place. Um, and we've talked about how Form, like formlessness is kind of a dangerous thing if we try to just say like, well, let's just get together and see what happens. So we're kind of talking about how it's a good thing and it's necessary. Um, so when we gather with forms in mind, what is it that we should do? So if let's say you were the pastor of a church or you're on a church staff with the people at your table and you're trying to, do, to create your church's liturgy, what is it that you would put in your liturgy? So go ahead and take, I'll give you like four or five minutes and talk about what, when we gather, what should we do? All right. So hopefully you've had some time to talk with your 
church staffs or your groups. And basically the idea is uh, if we're putting together a service, if we have to have form, if we have to have an order, um, everyone say hi to Jay, Joseph, Paul, Kirk, and all the fourth, and Erica. Um, so if we have to have order and service, what are the things that we should do when we gather? So we can, eat, I mean, we can walk around with the mic, but maybe it might be easier to just yell it out. If you guys, what are some things that you thought we should do? Structure. Okay, that's good. A teaching from the word. All right. Prayer. Communion. A central focus. What would you mean by that? Okay. Yeah. Did everyone hear that? Back of the room, maybe not. Basically, she's saying we, when, whatever we do, uh, whether it's worship or a teaching or communion, you need to have a focus. So, uh, and she's, she mentioned the focus should be Jesus. Are, we, are the things that we're doing pointing people towards Jesus? Anyone else? Discussion. All right, so, I mean... It'd be hard on New Life Sunday morning with a few thousand people to have a discussion, but we really like the discussion at Sunday school. Jay's going to check out. There's some, there's some bunnies out there, so he's really interested in that. Um, all right, so, so maybe discussion. Did anyone else have anything else for like a, a service? Did anyone mention skits? No? You mentioned skits? You think it'd be fun? What about, did anyone mention testimonies? Like every week we should have testimonies. Yeah, back here. Um, all right, did anyone mention announcement videos? How do we tell people about announcements? Or maybe have a pastor go up and do announcements. That's all part of liturgy. Uh, what about, this one, this one is an interesting one. What about an altar call? Anyone, did anyone mention an altar call? All right. Um, yeah, so there's, I mean, basically, like, like we can see, there's so many things that we can do as a church. We could have skits, or we could have videos, or we could have a teaching, or we could have worship. We could do communion. We could have baptisms. Um, and really, it all just creates a liturgy. Um, but, but like this table over here said, when we, when we do have a liturgy, it should have a purpose, um, and it should have a focus. And so I'm going to talk about the kind of three things, and this isn't an uh, extensive list. There might be more to this list, I think. Uh, and the list isn't in order, um, but I want to talk about a list of three things that I think that our liturgy should do. Um, and the first of these things um, is teaching. Uh, so I think our liturgy should teach people. So some of you might come to church, and you've grown up in church your whole life, and um, not to say that you don't need to be taught, but you might think, okay, like, worship is an expression of my faith. Um, but there's some people who, who would come to church for their first time, and they think, I don't really know a whole lot about Jesus. I believe in him, but uh, I don't really have like a lot of information about him, and I don't really know what he's done for us, or, or little things like that. So worship and teaching should be about literally teaching. It should be instructing, and um, it should help people to understand. Um, and kind of going back to what Glenn talked about, uh, the subtitle of Glenn's book um, is Worship Shapes Believing. And so his, this idea is that as we worship, as we sing songs, or as we come together, it kind of shapes what we believe about God. Um, and, and I think the way that we do this, uh, I think at New Life Church, we, I think we do this pretty well, is um, we sing songs. And we, we sing songs that mean something. 
we sing songs that teach people. And what, some of the songs I think that teach really well are, are hymns. And uh, if you actually look up the definition of a hymn, really it's a spiritual song. So uh, um, I don't mean hymn in the sense of like a song that has something to do with spirituality. Um, I think I would consider a hymn something that's an older song that's kind of stood the test of time. That's, uh, it's not old just because we like old, but it's, it's got something to it. It's, um, it is, usually what I would consider a hymn would be theologically rich. It's, it teaches things about theology. So it's like, as you've gone through the last nine months of systematic theology, there might be themes that you've learned in these last nine months in the song. Um, and like I said, it's these things, like, I don't think we're church hipsters where it's like, oh, I like hymns because they're old, just like I like my grandpa's leather shoes that I'm wearing. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, it's just old, so that's cool. Like, oh, this old picture that I put on Instagram, that's cool. It looks, it looks vintage, and this song is vintage. It's sweet. Uh, it's more than that. It's, I think the, the reason that we have these songs around still is because uh, they've stood the test of time. They've kind of stood up against um, the, the theology, and it is so rich. So these songs, I think they should teach people about the Trinity. They should teach people about the death and resurrection of God and uh, of Jesus and all these things. Like like I said, it it should be kind of like a recounting of the last nine months in these songs that we sing at church. Uh, And some churches do a really good job and some don't. Uh, And sometimes you might have heard the term. Actually, I want to know if you've heard this term, if it's like a common term that I can use. Um, But some of you might have heard of songs that are like the Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Have you guys heard of that? No? Okay. So Jesus is My Boyfriend songs um, is basically what I, would, what I would consider a song that it's like, it's about God, and the person who wrote the song was thinking about God when they wrote it, but really if you looked at it, it's like, that could be about anyone. It could be about a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, and I think that those are kind of like a tricky thing to have in a church service, a tricky thing to have in your liturgy. And I think New Life Church does a really good job of making the songs that we sing very uh, theological, very scripturally based. Um, and as I was thinking about it this week, kind of talking about this idea, I was thinking, like, for you guys, uh, Joe kind of refers to the Sunday school crowd as, like, the, the nerds, you know? Like, you guys come on Sunday morning. It's more, church is more to you than checking off the box. You come and you learn more. And so you kind of know this thing. Like, you, like I've said, the last nine months you've gone through six, systematic theology, and you're learning all these really cool doctrines um, so you know this. You know about atonement. You know about the Trinity. You know about church. Uh, after next month, you know about eschatology. And so it's like you know this just like a Lord of the Rings nerd would know all of the things in the books. Or if you've read the book The Hobbit. So you're like, you, you're like the expert. So your friends are like, hey, have you seen the, the new trailer for the new Hobbit movie or the new Lord of the Rings movie? And you're like, Psh, I read the book. Who cares? Um, but when you go with that friend to see the movie... You have these pictures in your head of like, oh, I know what Rivendell looks like because I read the book. And I, I have an idea of what the Shire looks like because I read the book. Uh, and so as you're watching the movie, you get excited when Peter Jackson portrays it in the movie. And you're like, oh, this is so cool. My friend who doesn't know the book, who hasn't read the book, is seeing what I know. And I think that's kind of like, if I can kind of bring that into the church world and say like, when we sing our songs, it, it might look like that, where you are like, oh, I I know about the Trinity, and we're singing about it. This is so cool. Like, people who haven't read the book are seeing the Trinity through our worship, and they're seeing the Trinity through the preaching. Um, And I think that that there's a good way of doing this. I like to kind of do like this, 
I, I call it like the name substitution test for songs. Um, so, so here's kind of how I'm going to do this. I'm going to show you a couple songs here. And I'm going to go to extreme. And as I, yeah, I'll go, I'll go through the first song first. And this is an old, uh, it's an old hymn. I mean, old, like I said, it's not necessarily like hundreds of years old. I think this one was written in 2001, if I remember correctly, which isn't that old. But it's called, the, the song is called In Christ Alone. Um, and so I'll read the, read the lyrics to you here. Uh, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. You look at that song, and I think that's, that's one of my favorite songs because it is so theologically full. Like it's, it's really like bursting at the seams with theology and doctrine. And people look at that and they think like, oh, that's definitely about Jesus. And I, I think I like to do this test where I like substitute the name. So I think like, oh, I've got my friend named Johnny. And uh, I'm going to try to go through this song and see if I can switch Jesus' name for Johnny. And so I go and I think, and Johnny alone, my hope is found. And like immediately, it's like, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it says right here, for every sin on Johnny was laid. Here in the death of Johnny, I live. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> you, you, you can't say that about your friend Johnny. Like, that's totally not true. But then there's songs where you probably can. And uh, I picked this song because I, I, uh, I saw it on YouTube a few years ago, and I thought it was really funny in a really bad way because I thought... Man, I don't know what they were thinking when they wrote this song. Um, and I actually saw a guy walk in today, and he's sitting right here. He's wearing a shirt that says, Jesus Cristo es mi amigo, which for those of you who don't know Spanish, Jesus Christ is my friend. And this song here is it's literally called Jesus is a Friend of Mine, and it's by a band called Sunseed, who I think they were around in the 60s, and hopefully they're not around anymore. Um, but, but here's how the song goes. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that. He's one who will never leave you flat. And it says, Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. And I think if you did the name substitution test with that, you'd be like, Johnny is a friend of mine. And he taught me how to live my life as it should be. And he taught me that if people laugh at me, I should turn my cheek. And it's like, okay, Johnny's kind of a cool friend. Like, it's pretty nice of him. Uh, so it's like... That song, obviously, like the person who wrote it was thinking about Jesus and they're thinking about God and they're saying God teaches us great things and he does great things and he's a really good friend to ours. Like, uh, he's someone who we can rely on. And I think that that idea is okay. But when we're using this in our liturgy, it's like I don't know that I would feel comfortable putting this in a service because it's not really teaching something that's distinctly about God. Like People might get it confused. It's like, oh, that's kind of a Jesus is my boyfriend song. Um, so yeah, like I said, the liturgy of the church should be about teaching. It should be about, um, you know, like reminding people about what it is that God has done for us, what, who God is. It should teach us about his person, his character, and the Trinity, and all of that. Like I said, the doctrine that we've been learning about. Uh, the second thing that I think liturgy should do is it should help us to remember. Uh, and it's not like kind of a, mem- a memory. It's not like if you've got like a, a photo album and you think like, oh, I want to remember my vacation to wherever. I want to remember my vacation to California. And you look through the photo book and you're like, oh, I remember when we were here. We went to 
this place, and we went to the museum, and we saw this. It's, it's more than that kind of memory. It's, it's a remembering of what... It's kind of like a three-tenths memory, I think. Like the past, the present, and the future. You're remembering something about that through the liturgy of the church. And I think one of the biggest ways we do that is through the Eucharist. So the taking of communion, or maybe through the baptism, or, you know, like I think our worship and the teaching should do this as well. But I think the, the Eucharist is a great reminder and a great example of this. Because when we look at the Eucharist, it's, it's literally a time of remembrance. Like Jesus said, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Uh, and some of you have, might have seen this type of table. This is like a communion table. Um, and a lot of the traditional ones, like you can, I don't know if you can see this, but it literally has the words, this do in remembrance of me engraved on it. And a lot of like, uh, a lot of churches will have one of these in the front of their building and it'll be engraved there and kind of as a reminder, like when you're taking communion, do it in remembrance of me. And like I said, it's not like a memory, like when you take communion, you think, oh Jesus, he lived 2,000 years ago and he died for us and he died on a cross. That's a great memory to have and it's a great thing to remember, but it's more than that. It goes into, you remember like, Jesus told us to do this. He, he led his disciples in the Last Supper. He kind of initiated this at the Passover feast, and he initiated Eucharist as a, as a thing that we should do in remembrance of him. And then you look at the present tense, and you think, this taking of communion is an act that reminds us of how we should live now. It reminds us of what it is that Jesus has called us to. Uh, we're about to go after Sunday school. For, many of you will go over to Main Church and Pastor Brady's going to start a new series about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I think as we take communion, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, because Jesus died, the, kind of the past tense remembrance, it means that we should live differently. And the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to go through it for the next few months, and it's going to teach you how to live differently than the world, should, the world will tell you to live and how our uh, sinful natures tell us that we should live and kind of the selfishness of Uh, that many of us see in our own lives. I mean, if you don't see it in your own life, great, you're doing awesome. I don't know. I've never met anyone like that. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount is like, okay, we remember that because Jesus died, we live totally different than the rest of the world. Um, And then you look at it and you kind of have a future remembrance. And that's kind of a weird thing as I was thinking about that. Weird thing to say because it's like you can't remember something that hasn't happened. But I think what we can remember is the promise of what's to come. We can remember that uh, uh, the eschatology, like we're going to talk about next month in Sunday school, we're going to talk about eschatology, the study of the end times. And the end times are really uh, a giant study about the promises that God gave us. And it, like, we can trust in those promises. We believe that God told us things that are true and that they're actually going to come to pass and they're going to happen. So as we take communion, we look back. We look back on the, death, the sacrifice of Jesus, his selflessness, his humility, we look at how that, what that means to us today and how we should live, how we should act differently than the world. And we look at the future and we think of the hope that's to come. And it's always good to be reminded that the Eucharist, the communion, um, the Lord's table, uh, the, the feast of the believers, is something that Jesus is waiting for us. He's not up there taking communion at every church service in heaven. It, the Bible tells us that he's waiting for us to do it again when we're all together. So it's like when we take communion and we remember that, it's like, man, that's really awesome that this is su- such an important thing to Jesus and that he's waiting for us. So, so like I said, there's teaching and there's remembering. Um, and, and I don't think it should be a remembrance of only our sin. Like sometimes you'll go into a church, 
service and the, the, there will be like a time of confession. And that's not just to say that communion is about remembrance. Uh, and it's like Jesus saying, remember how sinful you are. Um, it's good to remember our sin and it's good to repent of our sin, but the remembrance piece shouldn't be just about remembering how sinful you are. We have so much more to remember. We have the past and the present and the future to remember about. Uh, and the third thing is seeing. And kind of what, what I mean by this is that our liturgy should help us get a glimpse into the future, get, us, get a glimpse into um, kind of the kingdom of God that's coming and hasn't come yet. Uh, if you've heard of, heard of the, like, people talk about you know, like the Lord's Prayer says, your kingdom come on earth as, as it is in heaven. And people say that that's a kingdom that's already but not yet. And what that means is, um, like the kingdom is coming, and it, we see glimpses of it here on earth, but it's really not here yet. It's not in full. It's not, hasn't come to a culmination yet. And it will, like in the end times, in the eschatology uh, of the church, like that, that's what we, we'll talk about next month. Um, but... I think that our liturgy should help people to see into that. It should help us to uh, get a glimpse or give other people a glimpse into what that looks like. Um, and I think a lot of times we talk about this idea of the mystery of the gospel or the mystery, you know, like there's, there's even songs that talk about the mystery of Christ in me. Um, and I think I, I was talking, I think it was in a class one time, I was talking to the professor and he said, you know, mystery is something that, especially for English-speaking Christians, we kind of have like this wrong idea of what mystery looks like and what the gospel looks like and what the kingdom looks like. Because we, when we hear the word mystery, uh, we picture Sherlock Holmes. We picture like a guy with a magnifying glass and a brown trench coat and a brown hat that matches his trench coat. And he's out there like solving, solving mysteries. And the, the definition of the word mystery in English is it's like something that's unexplainable, something that's impossible to understand. So it's like, who killed the butler? Nobody knows, except maybe the person who did it. So we're going to, like, that's a mystery. We're going to try to figure it out. Um, but really, the, in essence, the word mysterion in Greek talks about this idea, and this picture will kind of help you, I think, get a glimpse of it. But imagine you're in a house, and you're all alone, and it's dark, and it's quiet, and you're walking through the hallways of the house, and you turn the corner in the hallway, and you see a doorway that's lit, the door's kind of cracked open, and it's lit, and there's people inside. You can't really see the people, but you can hear them talking, and again, you're lonely, so you're kind of drawn in to like, oh, what's happening down here? There's like mystery about this room. Um, And that idea, I think, goes with the gospel, um, because it talks about how, or it shows us how the mystery of Christ isn't this thing that's not explainable. It's not impossible for us to understand, but it's something that's been revealed and is still being revealed. So as you walk closer to that room and you walk closer to the party that's happening in this room, you start to see things and it's exciting and it's, uh, it's transforming. Like you're going from lonely to not lonely. You're going from uh, uh, bored to involved. And you, so this mystery idea, uh, I think we should, the church, the liturgy should be something that's pointing out uh, the mystery of God and the earth. You know, like the the kingdom of the world is so much different than the kingdom of God. And the, uh, um, I think that it's, it's our job to help people to see it, you know? So our liturgy should help people to remember it. So we've talked about these three things, seeing, teaching, remembering, and seeing. Uh, and I, the one th- last thing I wanted to kind of bring up is there's something about uh, 
kind of being unified with the church fathers. Um, let's see, I had a quote somewhere. There might be a few slides back that I might have missed. And this, the idea here, see if I can find it. Yeah, the idea um, in this quote is that, that a lot of times when we develop our liturgy as the church, we try to think of like these new ideas. And I think, I think it's a trap that church leaders or pastors or preachers fall into. And the idea of like novelty, of like, I guess the idea might be that if I can come up with something that nobody's ever heard before, then I'll be like the best preacher. And I think that the business of church and the business of Christianity when we work with the Bible and God's revelation is we really should never be teaching something that nobody's ever heard before because that might be sacrilegious or extra biblical. Really what we're doing is we're reminding people of what is in the Bible. And C.S. Lewis um, in his book Reflections on the Psalms said this, this is one of the rewards of reading the Old Testament regularly. You keep on discovering more and more what a tissue of quotations from it the New Testament is. How constantly our Lord repeated, reinforced, continued, refined, and sublimated the Judaic ethics. How very seldom he introduced a novelty. And so we look at uh, Jesus' teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we think like, man, Jesus like really turned the tables on us in that. And um, his, his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was something that really kind of like threw us for a loop in a, in a sense of like he's not playing a trick on us, but he's just teaching us how to live so far differently than um, the world tells us to live. And uh, I think that as we look at these things, we should look at like what, is, what have the church fathers done for all of history? What is it that the church has done for history? Um, and one example I want to bring up, like I mentioned when we were talking about what we should do when we gather is altar calls. And I, I mentioned, I don't know if you caught it, I said, this is kind of a tricky one. And some of you might have thought, why is that tricky? Like, altar calls are great. Um, but I think, it, it, and why I'm bringing this up is not necessarily to say altar calls are bad, because I don't necessarily think that. Um, but it's more of like just saying, when we think about liturgy, we should really be thoughtful and purposeful about it. Um, and, liter- and sorry, altar calls are something, like here's a picture of an altar call, a pastor on the stage, and usually it happens like this. The pastor will give a sermon, and if he thinks he did a really good job giving the sermon, he usually has it planned out, and he thinks, man, people are going to get saved today, he'll say, come up to the front and receive Jesus. Um, And we talked about last week, maybe that's not the process. Maybe it's belonging to a body first, or maybe it's believing first, and maybe it's becoming first. And you know, So it's like there isn't necessarily a process. So this isn't necessarily bad, and it's not necessarily good. But a lot of people, like a lot of churches, in their liturgy, they say, we need to have an altar call every service. And, and I think that's great if that's what you decide, but it's important to realize that some things the church fathers have done throughout history, like the Eucharist and baptisms. Um, and then there's other things like the altar call, which for, like when I learned this, I was really surprised because my church growing up, they would do an altar call all the time. And there was always people up there raising their hands and... Um, the pastor will say, every head bowed and every eye closed, and then he'll say, if you want to accept Jesus, raise your hand and we'll pray for you. And that idea is really something new to the church. It's only kind of been around since the 19th century, and this guy named Charles Finney kind of initiated it. Uh, And like I said, I'm not bringing this up to say altar calls are bad or churches that do altar calls are bad, but really what I'm trying to say is uh, we we have a a pretty, um, pretty big responsibility as the church when we think about liturgy. And we, we have a big task, and it should be held kind of like with a, a reverence, like a, 
um, this idea of like, well, if we kind of mishandle this, then we're really doing something wrong. Uh, we're really like God's entrusted us to teach and lead his people. He's instructed us, uh, entrusted us to teach and to help them remember and to help them see. And so I think when we plan our, our services, we should have that in mind and think about what are the things we should do and what are the things we shouldn't do. Um, and I found this picture. You guys might laugh at it, but when we think about liturgy, we really should be thinking about the baby in the bathwater. And you've heard the, the term, you know, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that idea is, like, there's a bunch of dirty water in a bowl, and you try to empty it. But when you empty it, the baby goes out with it, and you've lost your baby. Um, but really, <laughs> really what it is, is, is we, should, we should be thinking about what is, what is our call as the church? What is, uh, what is it that God's created the church to do? And are the things that we're doing whether it's skits or altar calls or videos or worship or the songs that we sing or the texts that we preach, um, are those things accomplishing our mission? Are they accomplishing these three things, teaching, remembering, and seeing? And like I said, there's more to that. Um, But I think that's a pretty high call. I think that's a a pretty big task when you think about, like, that's what we as the church are entrusted with. And um, it's kind of like... It's, it's humbling, um, and I don't know that I would say scary in like a fearful way, but it's like, it makes you really think about what we're doing, and it makes you really think that we should think about what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the liturgy of what we do when we gather. And I wanted to um, finish by praying. I wanted to wrap this up and pray for us as a church, and pray for us as individuals, and um, just kind of close out this month of talking about the church. So Lord... Uh, thank you for this month of, of discovering and learning about what it means to be your church, God, your bride, uh, the, the, the bride that um, falls short, the bride that is imperfect, but you've still chosen us. You've still, um, you still use us as imperfect humans to bring about your work on the earth, and you've partnered with us in we're so humbled by that, God. And so I just pray that as a church, Lord, as New Life Church, um, as the Big C Church, as the global church, and as individuals, God, that you would remind us of what a great calling we have as the church to bring about your, your word on the earth, Lord, to, to help to welcome your kingdom into the earth. And Lord, I pray that um, we, would, we would go about it in the right way, Lord, that we would um, think about it in the right way, and that we would love the church God, like Joe talked about in the, the first week, Lord, that we, we wouldn't um, so easily discard the church from being a beautiful thing and a thing that you've created. So, Lord, I just ask that um, you would help us to fall more and more in love with your church and that we could be your church in the way that you've designed us to be and you've created us to be. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.